Welcome to another episode of The Acid Talk. As the economic fallout from COVID-19 crisis continues to take a toll on markets around the world, many questions are being raised about what this means for Asia's infrastructure drive, particularly when it comes to renewable energy development. Today, we are hearing the comments from David Uy, Managing Director and Head of Power, Energy and Infrastructure at MEFG Bank, who spoke at a virtual event hosted by the Asset Events Plus. All right. Well, David, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us today. Uh, just to kick off the conversation, just from your perspective, what has been the impact of COVID-19 in Asian infrastructure financing? I think for projects that have been under development, uh, projects that have been under development and that have uh, pretty much ripened to the point where financial closing you know, is imminent or was imminent, I think these projects have continued to to progress. There has been a bit of a slowdown, of course, in terms of developing the project and getting the projects across the line in terms of being able to achieve financial close. Um, but I think if the, at least for the well-developed projects, again, those those that have been uh, well-developed already by that time COVID-19 hit, I think generally it was more a slowdown rather than a complete stop, just because everybody had to ask many more questions in terms of you know how the project would hold up, whether budgets that were originally set up would still be sufficient, whether the contingency levels were uh, were reasonable, whether schedules were reasonable. A lot of questions of what happens if, you know, what's happening to the construction timeline, if people can't mobilize, if equipment supplies slow down. So again, I think it's really, really bit more uh, questions uh, that slow things down, but not really stop things. So things have continued to march ahead. I think uh, projects that are under construction, however, that have closed previously are the ones that are a bit more impacted. Because again, these projects are many of the projects we, we are involved in, we are seeing some level of delays that are attributed to COVID-19. And again, these kind of events were not really contemplated uh, when the original financing uh, financing was, was packaged. Thanks for that, David. I guess another thought that comes to mind is how do you see renewable energy as a viable asset class? Generally, as an asset class, renewables, you know, our experience with renewables has been very good. So I think just generally um, as as an asset class, I think people see it really as, you know, where things, I mean, I think it's very clear that's where things are headed, right? There's really going to be more reliance on renewables. I mean, as a bank, you know, we're, we're, we are, we have been the largest uh, private lender to renewables, you know, over the past how many years. And so far, experience has been good. So I think number one, as an asset class, it is attractive. And I think, you know, the trend moving forward continues to push more heavily towards renewables. I agree with, you know, others on the panel mentioned in terms of what the appetite is. Despite COVID-19, it's not changed. We see it just as strong as ever. I think the other thing also, because people realize that it is a good asset class. I think coming to Asia, a lot of the interest is really coming from developers who, you know, have either had some level of success in other markets, which are a bit more advanced in terms of where uh, renewables developments are. And for those who kind of miss the ship, they, you know, there's a bit of a fear of missing out factor that everybody wants to get in. So that's really driving, I think, a lot of the demand. And, you know, what you see, I think, in Asia is that all you actually need is a conducive environment in a country that promotes renewables. And you'll see no shortage of investors queuing up to do that. Um, you see that in Taiwan, everybody's trying to get in, you know, what I would consider the ground floor developers who have been there from day one or from the early days, as well as guys coming a little bit late, buying into projects that have been fully baked already. And there's a lot of interest there. You see a lot of developments in India. I mean, India's, it, I think, just somewhere short of 100 gigawatts of renewable capacity right now. Um, Ashish would know better, but 
you know, and we see a lot of interest going there. You see markets like Malaysia, even though their solar program is not very large because they have, you know, what many consider to be a well laid out uh, program for renewables. Even though it's not very large, the amount of interest you see relative to, uh, to the amount of projects that are actually available is disproportionate. I think those are some of the things that are really driving people to, to, uh, to look at renewables in Asia. Which markets in uh, Asia are you most uh, excited about for infrastructure financing? I think for MUFG, you know, I, as a lender and financial advisor to these projects, we, we obviously like to pick markets where we have a fairly high level of confidence that the projects can be executed and can actually get done. Unfortunately, you know, there are markets in Asia where projects take up, sometimes they take quite a long time to get done. And the, the failure rate sometimes is also not very, you know, not very low, that there are projects that are under development that never get done. So I think, you know, with that criteria and also looking at where some of our most important clients are actually headed, I would probably put Taiwan and India um, at the top of that list. Because again, these are markets where we see a, a continuous and reliable flow of projects in the pipeline, which means if we invest time in these, in these markets, you know, we, we would like to uh, make sure that we have a fairly good you know, a reasonable chance that these projects we get involved with actually get to closing. It's something that we can do. It's something we have risk appetite to do. And it and 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 these are markets where um you know again our important clients are playing. So I think these two markets I would probably put at the top. Thanks, David. That's a very interesting take on the different markets uh, you're looking at. Um, I have another question. How do you see feed-in tariffs playing a role in developing renewable energy usage in certain markets? You know, each market has to evolve. I guess at their own time. I think eventually, you know, uh, the the ideal, of course, is to see all markets as far as where you know utility scale renewables are concerned. It, you know, the the ideal really is to see markets basically come to you know similar situation as what it's like in India currently. Whereas Ashish mentioned, I mean the you know like the the the, the solar uh, bids now. The, the latest bids, I mean, the tariffs are so low. I think they're, you know, they're hovering around three and a half US cents per kilowatt hour, uh, which is, I think, you know, anywhere from what, 25 to 30% lower than thermal prices. Um, now, you know, India does have a bit of a track record in that and they do have scale. I mean, it's a very large country. You can build really large solar plants. So, and so I think there is a bit of a inherent advantage uh, there also, but I think each market, you know, um, you start off with a feed-in tariff scheme. You need to encourage the initial developments, and I think every market needs to maybe go through that kind of process to make it attractive. Vietnam's paying, you know, fairly attractive uh, feed-in tariffs um, to kind of reward investors also for the kind of risk that they're taking. But I think you have to start somewhere, and you know, I guess we're seeing each market evolve at, at that slightly different basis. You know, Taiwan's pushing their renewable agenda, and yeah, you know, offshore wind. These projects are not that easy to do, so you do need better tariffs to encourage people to do it. But even then, when you look at the, the second round auctions in Taiwan offshore wind, you've seen tariffs come down tremendously. So I think it's part of the process. And I think it's part of evolution that will eventually get there where all markets are competing at parity. Now, of course, David, uh, you've been seeing those interesting developments happening within uh, you know, Taiwan's offshore win industry, but what's your view on export credit agencies' involvement in Taiwan's offshore wind sector? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, to be honest, I think it's a bit curious, you know, how international banks really view the covered pieces in the Taiwan offshore market. On the one hand, of course, from a credit risk, you know, from an exposure management point of view, it really does help because you, 
if you've got 50, 55% cover in every dollar you're lending, you're only taking really 45% uh, commercial risk. So it does help from a risk management point of view. But I guess, you know, different banks may have different preferences uh, for it. And, you know, part of it also comes down, I, I think part of it also comes down to how banks' internal return models work. Some banks can get better returns on very thin pricing if you've got really good cover from ECAs. For some banks, it helps more than for other banks, I think. Uh, I think it's maybe one one thing I would be guessing. But I think in terms of localization requirements, you know, yes, I think it, I think there is almost near certainty that localization requirements will continue to go up. But I think there is also a lot of pent up, you know, I think there is still a lot of demand from ECAs. I mean, ECAs do like to play in this field. And, you know, uh, ECAs, some ECAs may be a little bit more flexible than others in terms of uh, how they look at um, content requirements. Um, I think that's one. The other thing also that we've noticed on, on the projects that, um, you know, on, on the last project we advised on was that there are a lot of financial institutions who want to enter the Taiwan offshore wind market, but who do not have local dollars. And um, these institutions are, are looking for ways to get in. And one of the ways they're actually looking to get in is to provide guarantees. So, you know, yes, you're not getting, you're not going to get an ECA guarantee, but you could get a guarantee from a, you know, fairly highly um, investment grade rated international bank, you know, as well as, uh, you know, maybe not pure commercial institutions. They may not be ECAs, but there are credit worthy entities out there who are willing to get into the sector and get exposure into the sector, but don't happen to have Taiwan dollars. So, and if the project requires Taiwan dollars and you've got somebody willing to lend the Taiwan dollars, but is not willing to take additional risk exposure, it, it should be possible to actually package these things. So I think that can potentially make up for any gaps that ECAs uh, that are left over from the ECAs. Thanks for that, David. Um, now, how do you see a local currency funding becoming, a, you know, a popular tool for future infrastructure financings? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think local local currency funding is 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 really preferred to the extent there is local liquidity. I think it really depends where, where, where there is local liquidity that can provide competitive, you know, competitive fixed rate funding. I think that 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 would always be the preference. And I think particularly for renewables that have a shorter, you know, a shorter construction period. Solar projects can be built, you know, pretty quickly. Wind projects a little bit longer. Offshore wind, of course, a little bit uh, slightly different asset class, but it's a little bit more complicated. But if you're talking about onshore wind and renewables, for one, the construction period is much shorter. So while your costs could be dollar-based, it's much easier to 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 do a, a currency hedge, you know, for a 18-month period or a 24-month period, rather than doing a you know a uh, an inter, you know a cross-currency hedge, you know, over the duration of a typical project finance loan, which which which, which you know you can do it on shorter terms, but these are all based on longer notional payment periods. So I think that's one. The, the construction periods are much shorter. So I think being able to hedge your FX risk over the construction period is easier for projects like solar and, and onshore wind. Um, I think the second thing is that the, the cost component as well of these projects are less US dollar reliant, for example, than a thermal. Thermal project, you've got fuel cost. And no matter, you can price it in local currency if you want, but it's always going to be dollar based. You can't help it. Uh, solar and wind slightly different. You know, yes, you have some O&M costs, but they're not going to be as strongly dollar linked. So I think it really does make sense to go uh, local currency um, when when the market is is there for it. 
Thanks for that, David. Um, I, I guess maybe just uh, you know, on a final point for today, and thanks so much for the time. Uh, what are some of the challenges facing renewable energy development in Asia? There could be a tendency to become over-exuberant in investing, for example, in all renewable generation capacity without, you know, um, commensurate investments, for example, in accompanying infrastructure that makes these things work properly. Um, underinvestments in the grid, you know, is, is, is probably the most obvious one. Um, you can have a lot of renewable capacity. Um, it's intermittent. You need to invest in the grid. You need to have a company, I think, infrastructure for it. You may need some gas-fired plants to kick in when, when power goes down. You do need investments, I think, in, in storage as well. But I think, you know, again, my concern is, you know, there will, and, and it's happened already before in other markets, um, but there will be instances where you may have so much capacity, uh, generation capacity, and underinvestments in other infrastructure that you see these projects getting curtailed, they can't work, people are not getting their returns, people get turned off from it, and they start pulling away. I don't think it's going to be, I think it will be a short-term thing, but it, it could slow down development. So I think that, that, that would be my, my near-term worry. You've been listening to The Asset Talk with David Oi, Managing Director and Head of Power, Energy and Infrastructure at MEFG Bank. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Asset Podcast and looking forward to welcoming you to the next one. Take care.